You're listening to PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome to Pet Life Radio's On the Road with Mac and Molly. This is your host, Donna Haleson. In this episode, we'll be visiting with Nevada Barr, New York Times bestselling author of the Anna Pigeon Mystery Series. The Rope, Nevada's 17th book featuring the crime-solving park ranger Anna, has just been released. The New York Times has called the Pigeon series thrilling. USA Today has deemed Nevada's books extraordinary. And the Boston Globe raves, Nevada Bar is one of the best. We'll be chatting with Nevada from her home in New Orleans. So stay tuned. More after these messages. Sit. Stay. We'll be right back after a short pause. Buster, you're telling me my dog food products can't go on your shelves? That's right. Didn't pass one of my Petco certified nutrition checklists. Sorry, Wayne. Who made these checklists? Geniuses. Very smart guys. Well, it's good enough for most grocery stores. Do you see cheese puffs on my shelves? Mayonnaise? Soda pop? No. That's because I ain't running no grocery store, Wayne. Your pets will get better nutrition. I guarantee it. Petco. With healthy pets go. Go to PetLifeRadio.com slash Petco and get $6 off your order of $60 or more and up to 40% off hundreds of items at Petco. PetLifeRadio.com slash Petco. Dyson. The new Dyson Animal Backs are powerful bagless upright backings for homes with pets. Air muscle and radio root cyclone technology generates the strongest suction power to powerfully remove dust, dirt, and pet hair from the home or car. To order your Dyson Animal Back, go to PetLifeRadio.com forward slash Dyson. PetLifeRadio.com forward slash Dyson to order your Dyson Animal Back today. Dyson. Music to your ears. Hi, this is Tim Link, host of Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Join me as we feature interviews with best-selling pet-related authors, award-winning writers, journalists, and bloggers. And we'll tell stories about the animals and interesting topics about the animals in our lives. Each of the interviews will give you a first-hand knowledge about why the authors and writers chose a particular story, what the feature animals meant to them, and what has become of those animals that we've talked about. And of course, I'll also share stories from my own books, blogs, articles, and experiences. So be sure to join me and the writers and authors on Animal Rights. Every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Nevada Barr was born in the small western town of Yarrington, Nevada, and was raised on a mountain airport in the Sierras. Both of her parents were pilots and mechanics, and her sister Molly continued the tradition by becoming a pilot for U.S. Air. As Nevada explains, when she was pushed out of the nest, she landed in the theater, receiving her bachelor's degree in speech and drama and her master of fine arts degree in acting. Following graduation, she made her way to New York City and for 18 years worked on stage, in commercials, and in industrial training films. She also did some voice work for radio. 
Over this time, however, she became increasingly interested in the environmental movement and started spending her summers working in the national parks, Isle Royale in Michigan, the Guadalupe Mountains in Texas, Mesa Verde in Colorado, and then on to the Natchez Trace Parkway in Mississippi. But while she was serving as a seasonal park ranger, she was also writing travel pieces and restaurant reviews, and she was weaving stories for sharing by the campfire. She eventually began to turn out longer tales, and her first novel, Bittersweet, saw publication in 1983. The Anna Pigeon series, featuring a park ranger as the protagonist, came to life when she married her love of writing with her love of wild places. Her first book of the 17, The Track of the Cat, was released in 1993, and it was honored with both the Agatha and Anthony Awards for Best First Mystery. Next, in 1994, came A Superior Death, loosely based on Nevada's experiences as a boat patrol ranger on Isle Royale in Lake Superior. Then in 1995, it was Ill Wind, set in Mesa Verde, where Nevada had worked for two seasons as a law enforcement ranger. Now her latest, The Rope, has been released. This prequel is set in the million-plus-acre, mostly desert, Glen Canyon National Recreation Area that surrounds Lake Powell and Lower Cataract Canyon in Utah and Arizona. In this book, we're provided with the previously untold story of Anna's first foray into the wild and the case that helped shape her into the ranger she became. A reviewer for the New York Times opined that Nevada has a real feeling for creatures who live in the wild, especially women who can't be tamed. When we return from this commercial break, we'll get a sense of how much of Anna is in Nevada and how much of Nevada is in Anna. And we'll hear amusing as well as alarming anecdotes about the wild animals this remarkable woman has encountered. We'll also hear what folks concerned with the national parks think of all the evil doings that Nevada has set in their surrounds. Here's a hint. Nevada was the 2011 recipient of the Robin W. Winks Award, given annually by the National Parks Conservation Association to people and or organizations recognized for enhancing public understanding of the national parks. Previous awardees have included Tom Brokaw, Ken Burns, and the National Geographic Society. So sit, stay, we'll be right back with Nevada after these messages. Sit, stay, we'll be right back after a short pause. Every pet is unique. Maybe they're gray in the muzzle, yet young at heart. Maybe they're growing out of the puppy stage and into their paws and ears. Or maybe they're just trying to maintain a more girlish figure. At PetSmart, we have the right food for your pet at a great value for you. PetSmart. Be better together. Go to PetLifeRadio.com slash PetSmart and save up to 30% on toys, collars, leashes, PetSmart gift cards, treats, and more. Go to PetLifeRadio.com slash PetSmart today. I play tennis because I love to, but inside, I want to win. Take away the court, the net, I might not be a player, but I'll always be a competitor. Lady Foot Locker understands that. Lady Foot Locker, the first to carry Adidas off-court shoes and the gear that goes with them. If you play your best, 
There's no regret. Lady Foot Locker. One place. Every woman. Go to ladyfootlocker.com and enter the code AFMAC1LF to get 10% off any order of $50 or more. Or enter the code AFMOL2LF to get 15% off any order of $75 or more at ladyfootlocker.com. Hi, this is Ken Jones from the Prince of Ponds podcast. The frogs are shaking the shakers, the turtles are hitting the slapsticks, and the koi are blowing the trumpets. It's party time here at Prince of Ponds. Out under the swaying palm trees, the pond fairies are kicking up their heels and spinning in delight in the twilight. Here on Pet Life Radio, it's time to celebrate the magic of ponds, waterfalls, fountains, and water gardens at the Prince of Ponds podcast. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. We're back and chatting with New York Times bestselling author Nevada Barr, whose 17th book in the Anna Pigeon Mystery Series, The Rope, is set for release on January 17. Welcome, Nevada. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for taking the time to visit with us today. You know, the first time that I, I heard your name, I wondered if it was a nom de plume or if you were a name for the state of your birth or if Nevada was a nickname that you'd picked up while a park ranger. But then I discovered that you were called after a character in one of your father's favorite books. And I wonder if we might start our chat there. Could you tell us something about that character for whom you were named and, and about your parents and your upbringing? Well, first of all, my father was a marvelous storyteller. And he had told the story of, of how I was named, uh, which was because I was born in, in Nevada. Then somewhere along the line, the story came out that I was named after the Nevada Smith character. And that stuck in my brain, and I thought, well, oh, that's right. Yeah, 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 I was named after the Nevada Smith character in the movie that, you know, played by uh, Steve McQueen. And one year my editor pointed out, she said, that movie was made like 12 years after you were born. So I went back and got the full story from Dad, why I was named Nevada. And it was because um, Mama didn't want to have a male obstetrician. You know, she was a pilot and she was a mechanic and she didn't believe a man who couldn't fly should be allowed to work on her airplanes because they didn't understand the pressures that the machinery would be called upon to bear. So when she got pregnant, she didn't want a male obstetrician because she didn't think he would understand the stresses that the machinery was going to be called upon to bear. So they found one in uh, Urington, Nevada, and Mama flew out. We had a little uh, Ma and Pa airport on the eastern slope of the Sierras, just barely in California. And so Mama would fly out to uh, Dr. Mary's in Urington, Nevada for monthly checkups. And then two weeks before I was due, she went and stayed on Dr. Mary's Sheep Ranch. And so when I was born, it was Nevada. Now, how did that childhood shape you into the park ranger, into the actress, into the writer that you would uh, become? It's kind of difficult to say because one's childhood seems perfectly normal. We were raised with a tremendous amount of freedom. You know, we were country kids. We lived on this little airport and there were like 30 kids in my entire eight grades of the grammar school I went to. And so, you know, it was a childhood of riding bikes and building sticker weed 
sports and, you know, as long as you were home before dark, your mom didn't worry about you too much. And I think that I developed there a love of the out of doors and I got my love of storytelling from my dad. He was a great raconteur and uh, jokes and stories and, and I just loved them. And from my mother and my father, but mostly my mother, tremendous love of reading. I can't even remember when I learned to read, but it was always considered a, an excuse for anything. You know, you'd say, um, your mom would say, well, set the table, and you'd say, just as soon as I finish this chapter, and she'd always let you finish that chapter. So my sister and I grew up to be bookworms, and I think that these things kind of all came together in the Anna Pigeon novels, you know, the disparate parts of, and strengths that, you picked up, that I picked up when I was very young. I understand that you're educated at the University of California, Irvine, and that you have a master's degree in drama. What had you hoped for or planned for post-graduation, and uh, what happened to you as you came out of school? What what ensued after that? Well, I was going to be a a rich and famous star of stage and screen, you know. And uh, (laughs) what ensued was some work, but not a whole lot. And then I uh, moved to Minneapolis-St. Paul, and I actually got a lot of work, but it wasn't the theater I dreamed of. It was um, television commercials and industrial training films, and, and so I was finally making a living as an actor, and I enjoyed it, but it wasn't like what I thought, you know. And that was in the 80s when the environmental movement was heating up, and I kind of fell in love with the environmental movement, And I thought, well, I can, you know, work in the summers when the film business was really slow and then make a living in the winters. And so I just sort of slid over. When you say you became interested in the environmental movement, what did that mean for you? And how did you begin work as a park ranger? Well, I had the usual way that women come into these things. My husband started doing it. Uh, He had gone um, to school in uh, parks and leisure. And so he started working as a seasonal interpretive ranger. And I thought, well, that sounds like fun. I want to go, too. But I didn't want to be an interpretive ranger because that was too much like acting. So I decided I'd be a law enforcement ranger. And that came about by, I was sitting in a dentist's office, and you know how they always have ancient, ancient magazines. And I was reading this article about these park rangers. They were law enforcement rangers. But they had gone with the scientists, and they'd gone into a bear cave in winter and brought the little baby bears out, and they were tagging them and weighing them and stuff. And I thought, oh, man, that's what I want to do. never did get my baby bears, but I enjoyed law enforcement. Now, what did you have to do to become a park ranger, especially in law enforcement, and what did some of that work entail? Well, first, I, I had to, you know, get my law enforcement training, and, you know, I paid for that, and then to make myself as attractive as possible... And then just applied all over, you know, until I finally got a job. And it depends on which park you're in. My first job uh, in Isle Royale, it was boat patrol, checking creels, you know, making sure people were obeying fishing laws, a little bit of customs work with yachts that were plying their trade from Canada to America, but, you know, very cursory. Uh, Mostly boat kind of things and campground checks and so forth. And then, of course, when I went... uh, to Guadalupe Mountains. After that, it was horse patrol and backcountry patrol and, uh, of course, always the campgrounds. And, you know, when I went to the Natchez Trace, it was road patrol, you know. So it uh, depends on, on which park you're in, what kind of uh, activities the law enforcement does, which is, I think, one of the things that draws people to it. It's not the same old beat every day. 
Are there some uh, memorable moments, maybe involving wild animals or people's pets that you could share with us? Oh, well, there was an odd one. But year before I went to Guadalupe, I didn't get baby bears, but I did get baby skunks because these little skunks, the mama skunk would bring the little skunks down into the, the campgrounds and the little skunks would run around because there's only things to eat sometimes. And the year before, for reasons they didn't know, this is why we were ca- live trapping the little skunks and, and taking them away from the campground, is a skunk had ripped its way through the side of a tent and started biting somebody on the face. And they caught the skunk, and it wasn't rabbit or anything. It was just a skunk that got really upset about something. So that was you know, one of those, those freaky wildlife stories. But for the most part... The wildlife I would see would be glimpsed, except for the bunny rabbits and the usual stuff. One uh, visit uh, that we made to Yellowstone, I was stunned after all of the warnings that you see about uh, staying away from the bears. When uh, there was a bear that was seen in the woods, we watched a couple of men get out of a truck with a tripod and a camera to move just a few feet away from it was a grizzly. <laughs> I was just stunned mm-hmm. to see that. So I imagine you probably had those kinds of uh, moments as well where you had to tell people to just get their heads on straight and not do stupid things. An old friend of mine, he's dead now, but he was a superintendent of a number of parks. But when he was a young man, he worked in Yellowstone. And they would have bear jams you know, where all the cars stopped to see the bears. And he wrote this man a ticket because he was smearing ice cream on his three-year-old daughter's cheek so he could get a good picture of the grizzly bear licking it off. Good grief. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) Well, you know, I'm curious. Your first book, which was unrelated to the Anna Pigeon series, was released in 1984. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until 1993 that your first Anna Pigeon came out, and that was Track of the Cat. Um, I'm wondering, in the interim, were you working, did you, in the national parks, did you end up going full-time in that work? No, I was working as an actor, and what happened during that interim, I always tell, you know, I got all these best first novel awards for Track of the Cat. I always tell young writers that it was my fifth book. During those years, I wrote about four other books. They just weren't any good. It took me that long to learn how to do it. You know, some people just write out of the out of the crater doing fabulous, but I was, you know, learning how to do it. What was it uh, at Guadalupe Mountains National Park in Texas that got you into writing your first mystery novel? And was it there that you were inspired to move into uh, that genre? It was, because I hadn't truly found my voice yet at all. In fact, I didn't even, I'd heard that find your voice as an actor, but I didn't really even know what it meant. And when I was there, I had a lot of time in the backcountry, and a couple of people that I, I really sort of wanted to kill and get away with it. And so Anna Pigeon started, you know, walking the trails with me, and she just sort of became my voice. Well, now, each of your books is set in a national park, yes? Mm -hmm. You know, and I'm wondering what the folks in the National Park Service think about all these murders being committed within their surrounds. They're great. (laughs) Because when I worked in the parks, I did all my research, you know, on the public nickel, basically, because I was working there. But I haven't worked in the parks for a long time, and the parks are just so generous in hosting me. Because I think this is a true fact instead of a fact I make up, but the Park Service has more over-educated people in it than all the other bureaucracies. So most of them 
you know, a lot of them have written books or writing books, and they just love it. They love the whole concept, and they'll help me, you know, try to figure out ways to kill people and you know, show me where it could be done. <laughs> I think they just get a kick out of it. Well, now, how do you write, and, and what does inspire you? Are there just people who continue to be in your life that you really would like to kill off, or what, what, what happens there? <laughs> um, it's kind of, you know, once you become a writer, then that is what you do, and you write whether you're inspired or not. And oddly enough, it, it's sort of the more you write, the more inspired you are, and the more things you think about, and the more places you want to go, and, you know, the more puzzles you want to dream up and so it sort of you know becomes more of a system than a than a waiting for inspiration thing where the fact of of thinking about it inspires you to think oh i know i could put an elephant in chapter three wouldn't that be cool so the the craft itself uh, has taken over the inspirational aspect how do you research your books i need to, i have to go to the park of course and do whatever anna pigeon's going to do and that usually takes two or three weeks. And while I'm there, I buy, you know, every map, every book on everything, plants, birds, and whatnot. I don't look at them. I just soak in every experience and talk to the rangers and breathe and smell and crawl around and get the whole sensory thing going and listen to the stories of the rangers because they usually have marvelous stories. And they get woven in, of course, to the book. And then when I come home, I let it sit for about five or six weeks so that I don't just need to tell everybody everything I ever saw, and then I begin to write. A reviewer for the New York Times said that you have a real feeling for creatures who live in the wild, especially women who can't be tamed. Oh, <laughs> Is that a description thing for them to say? <laughs> is that a description of you? I wonder how much of you is in Anna and how much of Anna is in you. When we first started out, she, of course, was taller and stronger and smarter and a better ranger than me, but we were very close, and, and as with any people, we've grown apart over the years because my interests have moved in different directions, but she is still the, she is my alter ego in a sense that, that whatever is on my mind concerning me or my friends or whatever is uppermost in my mind has a way of, uh, becoming uppermost in Anna's mind, even if it's in a completely different manifestation. What are some of the challenges that you face in centering on a single character over a series? You know, you mentioned that you have changed over the years. How has Anna changed over the course of the years? Anna has become a much better ranger, of course, because she's had more experience. She's grown less cynical. She's grown more able to have and enjoy fulfilling relationships with other people. She's grown far less tolerant of those who abuse the creatures or the resources. She has matured probably a little more than I have, but, you know, she's come to see the world the way one does when one has seen an awful lot of it. You know, when she first started out, she was, she was very new to things. She's become, I think, a consummate professional. What are the challenges you face in centering on a single character over a series? Is it, do you think it's more difficult to sustain her over time, or is it more interesting for you to develop that character and let her grow over time? I think there's, there's uh, both you know, the upside and the downside, as with most things. When you're doing a series character, it is a challenge to keep her fresh and interesting to you as well as to the reader, because if you lose interest... You know, if your character quits growing, 
what's the fun of that, you know? So she has to, I think you have to invest more of yourself in a series character because you have to keep bringing real guts and blood to this character or people will get bored and you'll get bored. So that's a challenge. Uh, there's also the challenge of she ages and I wanted Anna to age. One of my editors begged me, couldn't Anna like age in reverse dog years? You know, just get one year older for every <laughs> seven years you get older. So that's a challenge. And also, like real people, series characters get baggage. They get husbands, they get friends, they get scars, they get bad knees, you know, all of the things that a normal person would get because you're following them for, I mean, Anna and I have been together for nearly 20 years now. And so you have all of that baggage uh, that comes with them that you have to get rid of or keep track of. So those are the challenges. The gift of it is that you do have the leisure to truly explore any small portion of her personality that you want to because she's not in and out. She's a living, breathing, although fictional, character. And you also know her so well you can slip into her mind and out of her mind with the ease of an otter going into a lake. You know, it's harder when you don't know your character and you have to learn about them. But with Anna, you know, I know exactly what she'd say in any situation. We'll be right back with Nevada after these messages. Sit. Stay. We'll be right back after a short pause. Every pet is unique. Maybe they're gray in the muzzle, yet young at heart. Maybe they're growing out of the puppy stage and into their paws and ears. Or maybe they're just trying to maintain a more girlish figure. At PetSmart, we have the right food for your pet at a great value for you. PetSmart. Be better together. Go to PetLifeRadio.com slash PetSmart and save up to 30% on toys, collars, leashes, PetSmart gift cards, treats, and more. Go to PetLifeRadio.com slash PetSmart today. How would you like your business to reach out and invite in our audience? We have a brand new trademark concept called Info Seeds. Info Seeds are short 20-second seeds of information about your place of business, practice, or service is the best, most cost-effective way to invite us in. We only have a limited number of slots left. For more information, visit the website. PetLifeRadio.com Click on Sponsorship Information. There you can listen to a sample of Info Seed. Remember, only a limited number of opportunities are available. Hi everybody, I'm Megan Blake here with my sidekick, Super Smiley. The giant mutt and spokes dog for throwaways. You're listening to Pet Life Radio and I'd like to tell you about our brand new show, A Super Smiley Adventure. Our show explores adventures with animals. They can be traveling, out in the world trips, or inner journeys where our animals lead us to inspiration and self-discovery. Or just plain fun adventures. Join us here on Pet Life Radio on A Super Smiley Adventure. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. We're back. I'm 
chatting with New York Times bestselling author Nevada Barr, whose 17th book in the Anna Pigeon mystery series, The Rope, is set for release on January 17th. Now you'll be launching into a book tour. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about the plot and why you decided in this volume to go back to share with your readers what forged Anna as a crime solver. You know, I mentioned that um, whatever I'm going through, Anna sort of ends up going through, even although in a much different manifestation. And I was going to set this one in Acadia. In fact, the next book that I'm almost done with now is set in Acadia. But I was going through um, some business battles that made me feel just really helpless and and hopeless and and manipulated and ignored and, and, you know, all of those awful helpless little female things that I just can't stand. They just make me crazy. And so I was fighting that battle, and Acadia went by the wayside, and, and Anna's world started getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and she started getting more and more helpless and until she couldn't be her consummate professional self anymore. I wanted her before that. I wanted to see how she was going to become that. And to make her incredibly helpless, I dropped her in a jar and put the lid on. And then I didn't even realize I was doing that until Molly said, my God, what are you going to do next, nail her in a coffin, you know? So so I mm-hmm. settled in, and when I'd finally gotten her into that enclosed space, I had to find a, a park that would reflect all of these changes, her not being in the wilderness, her going from urban to uh, natural environment, her inexperience, the artificial nature of what she had done and so forth, and I decided on Lake Powell, and it was just perfect. Well, you know, as this is for Pet Life Radio, and it is on the road with Mac and Molly, and Mac and Molly being my uh, two uh, old English sheepdogs, I I wonder if you could reflect a bit on how the natural world and its creatures fill you and feed you. Wonder how wild animals, and uh, you know, most especially, are included in the books. I used to try to cover it up for fear people would think I was nuts, but I don't do that anymore. I love animals. I absolutely, I've got four cats that I wait on hand and foot and two dogs, and I think animals are the most pure and wonderful and magical things in the world. In fact, my mother-in-law once said, oh, she did thought it was silly that I liked cats better than people, and she said, well, okay, if the house is burning down, would you save the neighbor's baby or your cat? And I was thinking about it, you know, and she got terribly upset. But the creatures in our homes that we share our lives with make everything so much richer, even though we know they're going to break our hearts. And in the wilderness, I always feel so honored to see one. And it's almost to the point of, you know, probably because of my early exposure to Walt Disney's, you know, Snow White, I really don't think they're going to kill and eat me, even though as a park ranger, I know for a fact grizzly bears and tigers and stuff are predators, and I'm careful, but I love them so much that I just sort of think they give me a pass. <laughs> sort of traveling in Europe when I was about 44. I'd never been, I'd been everywhere in America, but never to Europe. And one of the things I noticed is they don't have any big animals much anymore. You don't see deer running across the road. You don't see a bobcat, you know, skittering into the bushes. We still have them, and it's not something that you can keep without paying attention. And I think the world is just 
so much richer because of these these life forms. I think it's just tragic that people think other life forms aren't as valuable as as those that are bipedal and uh, vote, you know. I was just thinking about in uh, in one of your books, Winter Study, you include the wolves in Rocky Mountain National Park. And uh, one of the things that's very much been on my heart of late is uh, the delisting of the wolves. I don't know if you'd want to say anything about that. I think it's terrible. They're always pretending that wolves go around eating little five-year-old girls and killing sheep. And, of course, they do. They don't eat the five-year-old girls, don't have a taste much for people. They eat sheep, but the government is bent over backwards to rectify that people just want to kill varmints and they consider wolves uh, anything that is a fellow predator you can always get people all up in arms about how evil they are and the wolves aren't back yet they're beginning they're beginning to come back and it's just the wrong time to to jerk them off the list I wondered just if you want to say maybe a little more about some of the encounters that you will have had over the years with the animals in the wild. Maybe even just, a, I don't know, a story or two about a majestic creature that you encountered and what that moment was like. You touched on that, but maybe if you could go into that just a little bit further. It's funny, the, the grandest moments for me were in uh, Rocky Mountains and I so wanted to see a grizzly bear because a grizzly bear factored in, you know, a big, fierce grizzly bear that's bitey and, you know. And I finally saw my grizzly bears, and I was, I was way up there, and in the high country, the fog kind of rolls off these cliffs, and it was like sunset. And so the fog was rolling off the color of, of a bright orange lava, and the huckleberries were in season. And across this little valley, there was a, a hillside. It was a southern-facing hillside, so it was full of huckleberry bushes. And there were three big, fierce grizzly bears quietly padding along, eating little berries. And you look at that and you think, our interfaces with nature, if we don't mess with them, they usually don't mess with us. And to see these huge, much-feared creatures just eating berries in the sunset was one of those moments you have where you think, all could be right with the world. (laughs) Can you tell us what's next for a Nevada bar and uh, and a pigeon? It's Acadia National Park, and I'm working on that book uh, as we speak. So that's going to be the the next stop. You're heading back up towards my neck of the woods. I'm native to Massachusetts, so wonderful to hear you. (laughs) You're going up that way. And uh, have you been there? Are you going back again, if you have already been? I have. I went out there and spent quite a while with the chief ranger and marvelous ranger on Scudic Peninsula, which is part of it, and I will probably need to go back for a tune-up. But I'm not not going to go when it's cold. (laughs) And it can get cold up there. That's absolutely true. (laughs) Well, is there anything else you'd want to make certain that we touched on today before we close out our time together? No, I think you were very thorough. (laughs) Well, very good. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for being with us today. And I I do hope our listeners will be on the lookout for Anna Pigeon and the rope. And I hope you'll join me next time as we head out on the road with Mac and Molly. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.